Welcome to the Saltwater Strategist podcast from the Australian Naval Institute. In this series, we talk to a range of domestic and international military strategy planners, academics, historians, policy advisors, and current and ex-naval officers to debate and discuss maritime and naval strategy in a rapidly evolving geopolitical landscape in the Pacific and Indian Oceans. I'm Simon Wallstrom from the Australian Naval Institute, and this special podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Serco Asia Pacific. For this episode of the Saltwater Strategist podcast, we bring to you a live recording of the 2023 ANI Vernon Park Oration. Our thanks to this year's oration sponsor, Serco Asia Pacific, and in particular, Rear Admiral Clint Thomas, AMCSC. The oration was delivered by Her Excellency, the Honourable Dame Annette King, DNZM, to an audience of ANI members, sponsors and friends at the Hotel Realm in Canberra on the evening of 20th of June. With continuing developments in our region, Australia's oldest and closest partner in New Zealand remains as important today as it did during World War I, with the legendary and celebrated Anzacs. Enjoy. Good evening, everybody. Kia ora koutou. Uh, and that probably gives an indication where we're going to go with tonight. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome tonight's guest speaker to give this year's Vernon Parker oration on the topic of New Zealand and Australia, closest friends, myth or reality. I already have my own view. <laughs> uh, our speaker will be familiar to our ANI members. She's been a wonderful supporter of the Institute throughout her time here as the uh, New Zealand High Commissioner. And I'm, of course, referring to Her Excellency, the Honourable Dame Annette King, Dame Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit. By way of background, Dame Annette commenced her duties here as the New Zealand High Commissioner in December 2018. Uh, some of you will recall that as the pre-pandemic period. Uh, and so she's seen us through natural disasters, pandemics, and the good and the bad of Australia. Before this, Dame Annette served as the Deputy Leader of New Zealand Labor Party and the Deputy Leader of the Opposition 2008, 2018, and 14 to 17, respectively. Her political career spans decades from 1984 to 2017. Senior Cabinet Minister in the Fifth Labor Government of New Zealand was the MP for Wangatoi electorate in Wellington from 96 to 2017. Her portfolios include health, police, transport and justice. Amongst the many positive policy and legislative changes Her Excellency oversaw during her political career, she is quoted as being most proud of rebuilding hospitals, many of which were under threat of closure during her time as the Health Minister. Unsurprisingly, Damonette also introduced the establishment of district health boards and introduced free GP visits for Kiwi children under six. Six. And this policy base, sorry, I couldn't let that get away. I'm sorry, Your Excellency. Sorry. So was that, that, was that bad? Sorry. Her Excellency states that her experience in voting for homosexual law reform in 1986 has stayed with her and has shaped a view on the need to have an act with a strong conscience. Having read through Her Excellency's biography, the short political overview does not do justice to your years in the New Zealand political system, and I do apologise for that. Uh, we do have limited time, and I did want to have a little reflection on your personal history as well, because I think that'll come out during your oration to us. Originally hailing from the close-knit town of Murchison in New Zealand's South Island Tasman region, an area described as scenery on steroids with mountain peaks, rushing white water rivers and iconic tea-coloured streams. It has mountain beach forests which encourage visitors to explore the South Island high country. It's home to the Nelson Railway, which goes nowhere, uh, the Buller Gorge, 
and uh, New Zealand's longest swing bridge. And I imagine as a uh, young lady growing up in Merchants, and that sort of outdoor lifestyle shaped the person that you are today, Your Excellency. Very young age, selected to uh, do equestrian representation and an active outdoor sportswoman in uh, basketball, hockey and softball, and being active, strangely enough, in the school debating team. Just before your political career began, you undertook a foray into your first chosen profession, that being a dental assistant, which influenced, I think, your views throughout your life and throughout your, uh, your time as a politician. That came from a weekend job at 14, cleaning up the school dental clinic, and prompted you to undertake a diploma of dental nursing at Waimea College, something you say that you were drawn to through other things from the formality of the crisp, clean dental assistant's uniform. Uh, you then worked as a dental nurse and finished a Bachelor of Arts degree in political science and history with a postgraduate diploma in dental nursing at the University of Waikato, 1981, quickly tutoring, and then moving into politics in 1984. Damonettes received the 1990 New Zealand Commemoration Medal, the New Zealand Suffrage Centennial Medal in 1993, and in 2018, New Year's Honours, was appointed for service as a Member of Parliament uh, as a Dame Companion. She's also a recipient of the Waikato University Distinguished Alumni Award, being in distinguished company with prior winners, such as His Excellency, the Lieutenant General, the Right Sir Jerry Matapare, Dr. David Derek Sakoa, who is uh, former Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands, the Honourable, I'm going to get this badly wrong, uh, Hakia Parata, and uh, unfortunately for me, Wayne Smith, former All Blacks coach. <laughs> Strangely enough, Damon Nett was also awarded a Bravo Award in 2007 by the New Zealand Skeptics for a work with, along with an industry group known as the Natural Products of New Zealand in their attempt to provide standards and accountability. So you have wide readership. <laughs> um, you've described yourself as an all or nothing kind of person and uh, quoted as saying, I think the MPs who try and sit on the fence are often caught out because in the end, you can't be everything to everybody. Your hobbies include now reading, watching TV, and uh, you've been quoted as being one of the original watchers of Coronation Street. I still watch. <laughs> You're still very active in the New Zealand community, a patron of sports clubs, welfare organisations, chair of uh, Life Flight Trust Emergency, and continuous strong advocacy for positive healthcare role models in the community as an advocate for continuum healthcare for aged care. Uh, you maintain an active lifestyle, uh, as you do with your husband, Ray, um, who you've said lifts heavier weight, but not as well as me. <laughs> Probably courtesy of your active years as a young girl in Murchison. You call yourself a rugby and cricket lover, amongst other things. I'd like to take the time to acknowledge the good work of the English cricket team at the moment under the tutelage of coach Brendan McCallum and thank him for nothing. Uh, equally staunch advocate of Australian Rugby Union, I'm predisposed with my own views of your oration that you're about to give us. Uh, and have done a dissertation on why I hate to watch the All Blacks win the Bledisloe Cup, but respect them all the same. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, um, within New Zealand politics and also over this side of the trench, uh, you are known well for your empathy, thoughtfulness and caring for others, and widely recognised as New Zealand's longest serving female and favourite politician. Even more so to your good friend Jacinda Ardern. So having pulled teeth, both in politics and literally, both with a bit of pain and suffering in both professions, it provides us with a great backdrop for tonight's oration. You're also quoted as saying, after your years here now, you think that Australians might like New Zealanders more than we like to admit. 
So that might be true, I would say not on Bledisloe night, but certainly tonight we look forward to being convinced as an honoured politician, revered leader, proud mum, strong wife, independent thinker, and maybe just an honorary Aussie, uh, noting where you are for your time over here. It's a great pleasure to have Your Excellency come and speak to us this evening. On the topic of New Zealand and Australia, closest friends, myth or reality, Tenakoa, Your Excellency, the floor is yours. Kirotato, no my haramai, tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. Can I begin by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people on whose land we meet tonight? I'm honoured to be invited to speak at the 2023 Vernon Park Oration. I was to be joined by my husband Ray, who, amongst other roles in a very successful career, was a former army officer and a wonderful partner throughout my career. So a big thank you to you, Ray, who is on urgent grandfather duties. And thank you to all the partners here tonight because we couldn't do our job without you. Thank you, Guy, for the generous uh, introduction. A lot of the things you said are not actually fact. <laughs> and I'm so surprised you had to use six when you could have used fish and chips. <laughs> and you haven't got a chance of winning the Bledisloe once you got rid of Dave Rennie. But tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I am going to speak about Australia and New Zealand, no two countries closer on the planet, myth or reality. After almost five years as the New Zealand High Commissioner to Australia, numerous meetings, thousands of words written and more spoken about the relationship between our two countries, is it true that there is no two countries closer on the planet? That is a quote from the McKinsey Global Institute. So tonight, I'm going to argue our two countries are the closest on the planet. It's not a Pollyanna view nor have I been struck by Stockholm Syndrome, <laughs> but it is based on history, on values, on culture, on defence, on trade, on business, diplomatic, people-to-people -people relationships, sporting and travel arrangements. This year, we are celebrating the trifecta, 80 years of diplomatic relations, 50 years of trans-Tasman travel arrangement, and 40 years of closer economic relations, CER. And every year, the people of Australia and New Zealand vote that we are each other's best friends in respect of polls. But as Kath and Kim would say, <laughs> same but different. <laughs> so what is the same and what is the difference? And do the differences matter anyway? Recently, both our countries gathered for Anzac Day. Since the 25th of April 20, 1915, a bugler has played the last post and together we've recited the ode, we will remember them lest we forget. We often chart our relationship from World War I when a unique bond was formed, the Anzacs. Today we talk of mateship with some good-natured ribbing and rivalry but the Anzacs weren't always warm and fuzzy about each other. New Zealanders in the AIF were sometimes referred to as Bill Massey's tourists. Bill Massey was the New Zealand Prime Minister during World War I. 
C.E.W. Bean, Australian official war correspondent, 1914-18, considered, quote, New Zealanders colourless, a pale imitation of Australians. While Dennis McLean, former New Zealand diplomat, wrote, New Zealand troopers thought the Australian a bumptious fool who thinks nobody knows anything except himself. Today we commemorate Anzac Day together, playing both national anthems, joint wreath laying, marching together in Vetson Parade. The Anzac Bridge in Sydney flies both flags. Anzac Parade in Canberra is flanked by Australian gum trees, while New Zealand hebes are planted down the centre. The Pukeaho National War Memorial Park in Wellington has a dedicated Australian section. So we hold this historic connection as the foundation of our relationship. But the New Zealand-Australian connection started decades before. New Zealand was a sub-colony of New South Wales until 1841, when New Zealand was separated and made a colony in its own right. History books tells us this ended almost 50 years of confusion over the governance of our islands. And it happened after the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi between Māori tribes and the Crown, Queen Victoria, in 1840. This led to the difference in our constitutional arrangements. The Treaty of Waitangi is our founding document. We don't have a written constitution. And like the United Kingdom, we are a unitary state with parliamentary sovereignty unlike Australia with the Federation made up of states and territories, upper and lower houses. New Zealand is a unicameral parliament, having dismantled our upper house in 1951. We don't have the same complexities of states and federal government, and most of our government agencies and policies cover the whole nation. But we almost joined the Federation of Australia. New Zealand was involved in discussions right up to 1900, when following a royal commission, New Zealand decided to be a separate country rather than a state. Today, we have the option to join still. New Zealand is written into the Australian Constitution, Clause 6, the only foreign country to do so. I don't think there's any plans to join at the moment. <laughs> An obvious difference has been the approach taken both our, both our countries to our Indigenous people. As I mentioned, the national document of New Zealand is the Treaty of Waitangi. It's formed the basis of our relationship since 1840, dishonoured by the early colonial government, leading to the New Zealand Wars from 1843 to 1872. Conflict arose from the rapid growth in the number of settlers and attempts by Maori tribes, iwi, to retain their land and sovereignty, which they never ceded. Efforts to address the long-standing grievances led to the establishment of four Māori seats in Parliament in 1867 through the Māori Representation Act, recognition of obligations under the treaty. Today, there are seven Māori seats in the Parliament. But it wasn't until the 1970s that redress for the injustice, a confiscation of land, violence and repression were started to be taken seriously with the establishment of the Waitangi Tribunal set up to hear claim by Māori for restitution dating back to 1840. The Tribunal is advisory, 
and final decisions on claims are made between the affected tribe and the government. Most claims have now been settled, with post-settlement being the focus going forward. Today, the Māori economy is an integral part of the New Zealand economy, valued at over $70 billion, expected to reach $100 billion by 2030. Māori language became an official language of New Zealand in 1987 alongside English. Australia is on a journey of addressing past wrongs for your Indigenous people with far greater complexity, hundreds of different languages, scattered and remote communities. And having travelled to Australia for over 50 years, I can see the efforts being made to give recognition to the oldest living peoples on earth. In February 2020, Australia and New Zealand signed the Indigenous Collaboration Arrangement, which seeks to promote the economic, social and cultural advancement of our respective Indigenous people. We have much to learn from each other, and we watch with interest the outcome of the vote. Another difference between our two countries is our voting systems, a proportional system in New Zealand, a preferential one in Australia. But the outcome is the same. Free and fair democratic elected governments through the ballot box. We both have a three-year term of parliament. We're both governed by a constitutional monarchy, but even that's likely to change. And I believe if Australia becomes a republic, New Zealand won't be far behind. So we haven't formally joined together as one country. But over the decades, both countries have worked at ways to strengthen the relationship built on history, values, culture, family connections and friendship. At a government-to-government -government level, Australia's relationship with New Zealand is the closest and the most comprehensive of all our bilateral relations. The strength of the bond between New Zealanders and our Australian neighbours has become part of our identity as a nation. From those early Anzacs, right through to trade and business, defence, intelligence, diplomatic, sporting and travel arrangements of today. We share liberal democratic values, a commitment to a rules-based order and its institutions, and a market-based economic model. We were together in 1919 at the signing of the Treaty of Versailles founding members of the League of Nations in 1920, and the United Nations when we both signed together on the 26th of June, 1945. Today, we are constant partners within the UN system. I saw firsthand how we worked together at the World Health Assembly when I was Minister of Health. New Zealand and Australia were key architects in the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control which has led to millions of lives saved from the harm of tobacco. We are together as like-minded nations at the UN. We cooperate closely in other global and regional fora, the WTO, APEC, East Asia Summit, the ASEAN Regional Forum and the Pacific Island Forum. And we're both committed to building a stronger Pacific family through our long-standing collaboration with our Pacific partners. In defence, we've been together in every conflict since the Boer War. There are a few times where we differed. New Zealand was involved in Vietnam War, 
but our soldiers were volunteers, not conscription. What was similar was the strength of opposition in both our countries to our involvement in this war, and large protests were hurled across Australia and New Zealand. To our shame, we both shunned the men and women who went to Vietnam at the behest of their governments. It was decades before their contribution was acknowledged, regardless of the rights or wrongs of involvement. Another occasion was Prime Minister Helen Clark's refusal to join the Coalition of the Willing in Iraq in 2003. Australia is New Zealand's only formal ally, but we are not Australia's only ally. Formal expression of our security partnership is found in the Canberra Pact of 1944 and the 1951 ANZUS Treaty. Our bilateral defence relationship is underpinned by the 1991 Closer Defence Relationship Agreement, updated in 2018. I'm sure many of you will remember that New Zealand was suspended from the ANZUS Treaty by the US on September the 17th, 1986, following the banning of a nuclear-powered and armed vessel into Wellington Harbour. In 1987, New Zealand Parliament passed the Nuclear Free Zone Disarmament and Arms Control legislation. That legislation is now bedrock policy across the political divide in our country. Although Australia did remain very annoyed with us at the time, we remain as allies. And over time, the relationship with the USA has returned to a very, very close one, to quote President Obama. The clear difference is our anti-nuclear legislation. But both our countries are signatories to the Non-Proliferation Treaty. I have been asked why New Zealand hasn't joined AUKUS. Obviously, a country the size of Sydney is not in the position to buy nuclear submarines, and our nuclear-free policy doesn't permit such vessels into New Zealand waters. But we support Australia in their AUKUS decision and have backed Australia at the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and their commitment to a nuclear-free Pacific. There will be other opportunities to join Pillar 2 of the AUKUS arrangement, and we are waiting further details. I've experienced the closeness of the defence relationship during my time here. It arises not only from our military history together, but our long-lasting friendships that have been forged through joint training, exercise, and the trust that we have in each other. An example of this is at the end of July to the end of November, two HMNZS ships, Temana and Aotearoa, will be in Australia. Australian crew will be on board giving support while we test our new capability. I'm told part of the exercise is missile firing. I hope Australia hasn't beaten us in the Rugby World Cup or there could be unnecessary provocation. <laughs> The challenge now is how we go forward together. Work is underway with reviews taking place in both countries. New Zealand is looking at how we can be more interoperable and a multiplier to Australian defence capability. In April this year, Australia and New Zealand unveiled Plan ANZAC, 
a bilateral agreement to build on the history and cooperation to strengthen our army-to-army -army relationship. As the Chief of New Zealand Army said, Plan ANZAC will reflect a broader defence relationship, one that is open, based on mutual respect and is enduring. And to me, that is the nature of our defence relationship with Australia. It is based on mutual respect, open and enduring. The geostrategic situation in our region is making that work more urgent and important than it has been in the past, where we believed that we were living in a benign environment. And it must be time to place Pacific priorities at the centre of our engagement plans. The Pacific has become a place of strategic competition with a growing number of partners wanting to work with them. China does offer um, an alternative to Australia and New Zealand, but there are growing areas of friction. We need to avoid appearing to force Pacific Island countries to choose sides, as this is resented by our Pacific leaders. Our two countries need to be the partners of choice, based on our long-term commitment, our engagement and our investment, and we are part of the Pacific. Both our countries have increased the tempo of engagement, listening to their needs and priorities. A new initiative, Partners in the Blue Pacific, was launched in June last year. It's made up of Australia, New Zealand, US, UK, Japan, Germany, Canada and South Korea, with the EU, France and India as observers. It's an informal mechanism intended to support prosperity, resilience and security in the Pacific and bolster Pacific regionalism, providing opportunities for cooperation. It's too early to say how successful it will be, but it does demonstrate the level of interest in our backyard. Our bilateral economic relationship is underpinned by closer economic relations, agreement signed in 1983. As I said, we're celebrating 40 years of this agreement. The agreement remains the WTO gold standard of free trade agreements, and we are proud that we share that status together. The breadth of integration it has achieved already has delivered transformational real benefits across New Zealand and Australia's economy and society. It's not just an agreement, it's a web of instruments. But what was happening in our country in 1983? We played Australia in the Benson and Hedges World Cup Series, ODI, losing to the brilliant bowling of debutante Carl Rackerman. Kiwi won the Melbourne Cup, coming from last. Princess Di and Prince Charles visited both countries. Australia won the Americas Cup. And Australiana was top of the pops. Does anyone remember that particular one? Well, look, I mentioned these highlights to show how much has changed in 40 years. And while we're not only celebrating 40 years of CER, but finding ways to embrace change and make it stronger in another 40 years. Since signing, we've kept adding to the FTA, and there are now currently 80 supporting bilateral documents covering free trade of goods and services, free labour market, 
mutual recognition of goods and occupations, and the movement of capital across the Tasman. Australia is vital to the New Zealand economy, and New Zealand is a highly consequential actor in Australia's economy. Australia is our second largest overall trading partner behind China, third largest service export market. New Zealand is Australia's second largest source of tourists, mainly up into Queensland, I believe, and the top export destination for Australia's small and medium enterprises. Total trade with Australia in goods and services is 22 billion a year. 50% of foreign direct investment into New Zealand comes from Australia, with a total investment of 197 billion invested in each country. We share the same challenge of having China as our major trading partner, and both countries are seeking diversification to reduce the risk of having too many eggs in one basket. The year has been branded Forward Together, celebrating the bonds that guide us. If I was to summarise simply, Australia is New Zealand's most important partner, but we're not yours. Australia looks north to the US and increasingly to other major countries in the region, India, Japan. It means that we're constantly having to show the value of our relationship, making sure that our voice and views are heard. After all, we're a population of 5 million compared to 25 million. We may not be your most important partner, but we are Australia's best friend, and Australia considers New Zealanders as their best friend. And I base this on the annual Lowy uh, Institute poll and the Asia New Zealand Foundation survey, where people decide who they feel warm towards. And in the latest poll, 86% of Australians name New Zealand, a position that we've maintained over many years, and 84% of New Zealanders named Australia. Compare this to China at 33%, or India and Indonesia at 57%, Japan at 74%, and the UK at 77%. And hot off the press, and still under embargo until tomorrow, Asia New Zealand Foundation's latest report asks the question, how important different regions of the world were to New Zealand's future? 82% said Australia, 77% Asia, 67% UK and 56% North America. In 2023, we're celebrating 50 years of the Trans-Tasman travel arrangement. One of the things that made us the closest countries on the planet is our people. Our people relationships are intertwined. The free flow of Australians and New Zealanders living and working in each other's country has led to the closest of relationships, marriages, partners, children, relatives. A day doesn't go by without being told of a New Zealand-Australian connection. Three of our four children live and work in Australia, and all our grandchildren are here. The Trans-Hasman Travel Arrangement formalised travel between both countries, allowing our people to live and work in each other's country indefinitely, and with very little restriction. Access to services was reciprocal and citizenship was conferred on arrival. 
I'm old enough to remember coming here without a passport. It was my first overseas trip, like many of us. I recall sewing a special suit to wear on the plane just to fly across to Sydney. <laughs> the arrangement was unbroken until 2001, when the Australian government of the day decided to change circumstances for New Zealanders arriving in Australia. Many reasons were put forward to why Bondi bludges, soft underbelly of immigration, cost too much. New Zealanders decided not to respond and left in place the rights and privileges for Australians coming to New Zealand. And over the years, more restrictions were placed on Kiwis coming here, 2014, 2016, 2021. It became a source of irritation and then over the years described as corrosive to the relationship. In fact, it was the only real irritant to our long-standing relationship. Former Prime Ministers from both sides of politics in New Zealand argued to bring back reciprocity to the relationship. But it fell on deaf ears until the change of government in 2022. The Albanese government were committed to restoring the Trans-Tasman travel arrangement and just before Anzac Day this year, announced changes to bring back the same treatment of our nationals in each other's countries. It's been a habit for leaders on both sides of the Tasman to refer to our countries as family. Within the last year, Prime Minister Albanese and Prime Minister Hipkins have both done so. It feels more like that now than it has for many years. We have reciprocal health and superannuation agreements, meaning services are provided to our citizens regardless of which country they live in. We can buy homes in each other's countries and treated as local and not foreigners liable for a foreigner's tax. And my husband and I have already bought in Australia. <laughs> Kayama. <laughs> Even the trans-Tasman political tree is deep-rooted. We have furnished each other three prime ministers, perhaps four if we count John Gorton, who was said to have been born in New Zealand, at least two state premiers, Joe Bjocchi-Peterson and Mike Rann, both came from New Zealand. I'm sure you've heard that a former New Zealand prime minister, Sir Robert Muldoon, famously claimed, when Joe left New Zealand, it improved the IQ of both countries. <laughs> Barnaby Joyce was nominated by some wag as New Zealander of the Year <laughs> after it was discovered he was a Kiwi by descent. He renounced his New Zealand citizenship and was no longer eligible. There's no better example of our closeness than in times of trouble. During COVID, we shared data, experience, daily contact through our health officials, our ministers, and even shared vaccines. We started the lockdown on the same day and our Prime Minister addressed the Australian National Cabinet, something that had not happened since World War II. We even tried to get a trans-Tasman bubble, travel bubble going, but the virus defeated us. You know, hindsight is a wonderful thing and it's easy to second-guess after the fact. And there have been many critics looking back, claiming we could have done things differently and better. But the truth is, 
Both our countries saved thousands of lives through the action of our governments. And that is why we sit as the most successful countries in the world in managing a pandemic for which there was no playbook. So whether it's bushfires or floods or volcanic eruptions, disasters and tragedies, whatever comes along, we are there for each other. There are no more reliable partners. But no relationship could compete without areas of competition. And we do compete with each other in trade. We both have signed an FTA with the UK. New Zealand has completed an FTA with the EU. Australia has an FTA with the US and India. But we are partners in many other agreements, the CPTPP, PACER Plus, RCEP and so on. We also compete in sport furiously. I'm not going to go a lot about rugby tonight, but I am a supporter of the Brumbies when they're not playing New Zealand. And I was privileged to join the Canberra Raiders, got to blow the big horn and do the clap a few weeks ago when the Raiders beat the Sharks. What a privilege that was. And we are united when we're playing the Brits. Go Aussie in the ashes. This year, we are jointly hosting one of the biggest sporting events ever held in our countries, the FIFA Women's World Cup, an event that will attract billions of viewers. And of course, we compete over lamingtons, pavlova, farlap, crowded house, not so much Russell Crowe. <laughs> we have different language, jandals or thongs, chili bins or eskies, Manaka or Manuka. <laughs> but we do share the same sense of humour that some other countries don't understand. The castle is a New Zealand favourite. And I think Hunt for the Wilder People is enjoyed by Australians. We get each other's slang. We have more in common than divides us. We may bicker at times, as family members do, but you can't break the bonds that bind us. We are the closest countries on the planet. And as a former Prime Minister to New Zealand, Mike Moore said, Aussies are our best friends whether we like them or not. <laughs> so, wahau tihei toi potu, kawa tihei toi roa, let us keep close together, not far apart. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. A superb oration by Her Excellency, I'm sure you'll all agree. An engaging speech peppered with the shared and deep history between our two nations, plodding independent yet often aligned paths. Great friends often have disagreements, yet the strength of the bond will always ensure those relationships endure, just like those in life. It is fair to say that in answer to the oration's title, it is a clear reality and one that will endure for many decades to come. If you're not a member of the Australian Naval Institute, then please consider signing up today at navalinstitute.com.au to access a wealth of current papers, articles, and of course, attendance at future events. The next being the annual Goldrick Seminar, which is to be held on the 19th of October, 2023, at the Australian Defence Force Academy here in Canberra. As is tradition, and as patron of the ANI, 
The Chief of Navy, Vice Admiral Mark Hammond, has selected the theme for this year's seminar, The Influence of Sea Power on Australia's Future. We hope to see you there. I'm Simon Wallstrom, and thanks for listening.